I'm Bree. I'm Mar. And I'm Alexis. And this is Journeys to Journos, where we share our journeys to becoming journalists and talk to the people we've met along the way. Hey guys, we're so excited to be back. Thank you so much for all of the positive feedback that we got for our first episode. Bree and Alexis, how are you guys feeling? You guys ready for episode two? I'm feeling great. Yeah, I'm so pumped. Yeah, me too. Well, as we promised in our last episode, we will be talking about the Black experience in the journalism industry, and Alexis is really going to kind of lend us some of her journey and and how she's gotten to where she is, as well as how Black coverage has really looked in the last few months. This is a conversation that all of us have often, um, not just in February during Black History Month, but we did want to commemorate this month and definitely give the space for this conversation. So this past summer, we really saw publications across the U.S. and even internationally pick up what we have been seeing for so long. These instances of police brutality, particularly with Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, really struck a chord across the country. And we saw protests hit the streets like we really haven't seen you know in our lifetimes not since like the civil rights movement really the 60s right since the 60s really i i think it's civil rights movement level yeah and so it was so interesting again us being at the start of our careers and being in these newsrooms and seeing how they were you know choosing to cover this one thing that particularly came up within these early months of covering this was this idea of journalism ethics, which, if you don't know, studying ethics in this industry is really significant, and it's really something that is thought of really in in every decision, in every story, and really how you carry yourself in and out of the newsroom. And so the ethical question of whether journalists would be able to vocally say Black Lives Matter was definitely something that kind of came up. Do you guys remember this coming up last summer? Yeah, absolutely. And journalists really pride themselves on ethics and the the rules and code that we have set for ourselves. Well, we hope so. We 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 hope so. But I I think I think most journalists that I know do. And sometimes you get to the point where the you know the rules that have been set up for you do have to change and shift a little bit. And those conversations can be hard, especially for older publications or a storied list of rules that people are used to having. I mean, for sure. I think there were a lot of questions in terms of journalists in the newsroom, particularly black journalists and journalists of color that felt compelled. Honestly, everyone should have at least felt compelled to speak out in some capacity and to be able to just say the very obvious phrase of Black Lives Matter. That was something that newsrooms, I feel like, hadn't really addressed prior to last summer. So, Alexis, when considering all of these factors, especially Brie kind of bringing up, like, historically how newsrooms have dealt with the expectation of their employees kind of abiding by these sort of code of ethics and practices, you know, what what has it been like in terms of being a Black woman having to cover, you know, the black experience in a way that sometimes the ideal is apparently supposed to be objective. 
Yeah, um, the, the conversation on objectivity is really difficult because the standards of objectivity are often things that were written and set into stone by older white men who were in charge of news and newsrooms and news organizations many years ago and still now. So those are the standards that have been set for us. And as much as we, we as journalists love meeting our own ethical standards, the standards themselves aren't necessarily objective because the people who made them weren't the diverse group of people who are working in news now. It was a very homogenous group of people. So it may seem unobjective to be a black person covering black issues, but sometimes you're honestly the person who knows your community best. Absolutely. You you earn the trust of that community more if they know you've had the same lived experiences and you you can present yourself to them and present stories in a way that feels authentic because you have lived that experience and you're not just reporting from the outside of oh these people are going through this because that's not what it is to them it's their life it's their time it's their physical safety and that's so you know essential to to telling stories of people that's what journalism is about journalism is about telling people's stories and if you are skipping over stories or not letting good reporters go after stories because it doesn't feel like they'd be objective enough to cover it you're such a chunk of information that is missing from the general landscape of the news or I was on Twitter the other day and I saw this really great tweet from Chloe Lee. She's a journalist who went to AU with us and it was just so poignant about this, the difficulty around the conversation of objectivity. What's the tweet? It's her tweet says, since we're talking about objectivity in journalism again, I also want to talk about the constant risk that women of color in the field of journalism have to endure when doing their job to do fair reporting. We have to talk to all sides, and sometimes one of those sides wants us dead. That is, it, it's put such a pin in how it feels to, to watch this conversation, to watch people interview, you know, black people, the families of black people who have been harmed and interview cops or white supremacists who have caused them harm. Like, you know, normally you wouldn't interview people who are wreaking havoc among a community you would you would interview the members of the community and take them at their word but that may feel unobjective it may not it may not feel like you're getting both sides of the story but you know both sides don't necessarily tell the whole story each side is going to tell their truth i think too a lot of the times when the conversation of objectivity is had it's usually equated to or try to be made synonymous with this idea of neutrality or detachment, which is quite literally impossible when you're a journalist coming from a community that is affected by an issue like police brutality or when this concept of Black Lives Matter is brought up, how is that even possible? It's not. We know that, right? Like, I think we conflate this idea of fairness and balanced and editorial independence with objectivity and neutrality and detachment. And I think that that's where a lot of these issues lie. And um, I'm currently or in the process of working my way through this book right now. I've been reading it for a while because it's one of those ones that you pick up and put down. But it's this book called The Bevue from Somewhere. 
and it's written by this journalist. His name is Lewis Raven Wallace. Sup, Lewis? Yeah, right? It sounds cool. What's, what's the book about? So the underscoring of the book is the undoing of the myth of journalistic objectivity, right? So I'm pulling most of my language from before from this book itself. But in this one chapter, it really does talk about the issues that black journalists, specifically Ida B. Wells, was experiencing in the late 1800s, around the 1890s, with lynching and uncovering the truth of lynching because the way it was written written about in the white press was not the truth. And for her to travel across the country and uncover the real stories and what this actually meant for black people was huge. And I think to pull a line from the book, um, the author writes, Fanning a detached neutrality was easy for the people who wanted to sell papers and impossible for the people whose lives were at stake, whose every word was judged as a representation of the race. But nonpartisanship and editorial independence were not the same as detachment and neutrality for these journalists. Not being neutral was a path to the truth. So basically for them, they were talking about a time when they were moving away from the partisan press, when political parties actually funded newspapers and put out their own information to inform the people with an objective, with a goal. Then you're looking at the penny papers who did try to strive for this objectivity, but they weren't, they weren't, there was no way for them to truthfully tell this story of lynching. They were just not capable of doing it. So it took a black journalist to do that. And I think her experience and her knowledge is what led her to actually accurately tell the story of what was happening to black people across the South. And that's like so important and like super connects to Alexis's point of kind of like the the tension between ob- the tension of objectivity, the attention around the idea of objectivity. Well, you lose accuracy, right? Absolutely. Like, you lose that fundamental principle of journalism, which I don't believe is objectivity. I think it is fairness and balance and accuracy. And in order to achieve that accuracy, you need journalists equipped to tell the stories, telling the stories. People from those communities. Yeah. A hundred percent. And being detached from a community doesn't help you understand it better. And that idea of detachment comes from people who were detached from these other communities that they were covering. Anyone who was trying to cover lynchings at that time would be detached from that other than Ida B. Wells. Yeah. So this concept of who has the right to cover what is often being brought up let's fast forward to 2021 where we're still having a lot of these issues and that same question of who covers what and what is worth covering and unfortunately when you have a lack of diversity not necessarily just in the newsroom but particularly in leadership is where we're consistently in this cycle and having consistently having this you know this discussion and and the same issues over and over again and you know if a lot, a lot of these snaps. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of these newsrooms will now, especially post Floyd, are having these diversity initiatives, right? Because you know everyone's getting calls out, and you have these EICs or you know these large shop producers or network guys that are like, whoa, we're being called out, and so what they're doing is we're gonna you know hire X, Y, and Z entry level person and. It looks like on paper because they're hiring more 
you know, black employees, when in reality they're, you know, the entry level person, it actually doesn't do anything in terms of coverage because what happens is, you know, that entry level fellow or reporter or producer that is coming with these creative ideas on behalf of their community are getting shut down by the, you know, the white man that's been there for 60 years and will continue to kind of have that same idea of what's worth covering. And so unless we have some large changes like a black head at these major networks or these major magazines or these major publications, we're going to continue to have these issues because you need people from the community to have a seat at the table and say, you know what, that's worth covering. And not only is that worth covering, we're going to cover it this way because there's many ways to cover the black experience. I'm sure you could, um, you know, explain, Alexis. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sometimes you even need more than just the seat at the table. You need someone who's going to be an agenda setter. A major part of news is setting the agenda for, for the day. What's coming up? What's important? What's worth covering? You know, a seat at the table is nice, but if you don't have the power to, to decide what's coming out on that table, there's too much that's going to get missed. Absolutely. And in terms of these places, diversity and inclusion initiatives, you know, there always kind of is this sentiment of whether it's genuine or not, especially because since this last summer, you've kind of seen an uptick mm-hmm. in, in coverage or an uptick in how many people they're willing to hire. Right. Um, and so there's this question of like whether it's too like, is it ever too late to do the right thing? And of course, like you we're pushing for change and we're pushing to see it. And unfortunately, a part of that is feeling Sometimes, like, there is kind of, like, that lack of being genuine. Yeah, like, losing that authenticity. You want to you want to see, you want to be a part of making this thing better, but you want it to be authentic. You want people to actually want you to be there. You want to be more than just filling a quota. I have been filling quotas at private schools my whole life. I understand what filling a quota feels like but you when you actually get the chance to make that change is what makes a real major difference when people aren't just interns when people are are full-time hires and in management and those sorts of things that actually make it diversity in a newsroom diversity isn't the numbers that you put on a spreadsheet (laughs) it's the people who make the decisions and the types of coverage that get that gets put out and we've really got a long road ahead And a lot of people are going to have to be involved to get there. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's going to take the people in power now, the white people, to either, one, step aside and understand what it takes to achieve that progress and make their newsrooms more equitable and fair in their coverage. And that does require putting people in positions that maybe you once held or would want to hold, but that's just not the reality of the future, right? Like, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a lot for this change to actually happen. I mean, right now we're looking at major newsrooms. We're looking at the Washington Post, Reuters, I think the LA Times too, all have major leaders either stepping down or tiring, whatever it is, they have that opportunity now to make that change. And I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, trendsetters and big organizations like that really take the push forward to set the example as an industry. All right, Alexis, you used the word quota before. And I think 
a lot of times people think it's parity. They think it's a number that's required in a room for there to be diversity and representation. But a lot of times, I personally don't believe that that's the case. I know that that's not the case. So for you personally, what does representation in a newsroom look like? And what does it feel to actually have that? Absolutely. And I've been able to, I've had the privilege to be in, you know, a bunch of different newsrooms in my career. But I think that I, the, the visual of what diversity and representation looks like in a newsroom started so young for me because I was always, I was like always kind of a news junkie. My parents always had the news on. They were like, you know, arguing about politics back and forth. So it's kind of, it was kind of inevitable that I ended up here. My mom, my grandma used to always say they'd love to see me on the local news. Shout out to News 12 Westchester. Um, You know, so they'd always they'd always be like, oh, my God, we'd love to we'd love to see you there and doing that. But I remember looking at, you know, not just the local stations, but the national stations and not always being able to see myself. And, you know, there were there were anchors even when I was young where I could see myself like Melissa Harris Perry is fantastic. But she was fantastic, but she wasn't exactly me. And even though she was really cool and she was all about her nerd land stuff and she would talk about her kids and everything, like, I feel like she still fit that idea of, like, traditional news anchor, possibly because the stations required that from her. But, you know, the news anchor look especially is a very specific type of look. It's it's straight hair. It's relaxed. It's wig. It's the same every week. Right. And that was a really big thing for me because my hair is always different. I know so many black women whose hair is always something different and unique and you try a new color and i never saw that your crown yes it's my my crown my you know what i struggle with in the shower but it's but it's a part of me and it's a part of me that i can't hide so it's weird to see it being hidden for other people's comfort on the news but i remember the the first time i saw it and i really saw myself in in the in a news anchor was Jessica Williams, which is uh, on The Daily Show. But it was a non-traditional news outlet, so they got to do that non-traditional news look. And I remember seeing her on TV, and she had a different hairstyle every two weeks. You know, she wasn't just light-skinned. I was like, oh, that's me. That was the first time I felt like I can do this. I saw myself in a newsroom being entertaining and interesting and conveying important information to people. And I was like... There is a space for me here. You just gave me goosebumps. Yeah, and it's I remember feeling that. I remember feeling that when I saw her when I saw her braid switch two weeks into a show, I was like, oh, this is this I I can do this. It and that's what the importance of not just um diversity but representation. That's why it matters. Because there's somebody behind you who is going to follow in your footsteps. And for black people, and especially black black women, you know, following in someone's footsteps can be immediate. You can be directly behind them a lot of times. So it's really important as a black person to see that. And then another piece of media where I saw myself reflected when I was, you know, much older was Elaine Welteroth's biography, More Than Enough, which Brie so graciously gave to me for a gift. And I loved it. It was fantastic. Oh, my God. Did you really? I didn't get a copy. <laughs> I just bought you Paola Ramos's book. I mean, come on. Oh I my try God. to, you, like, do what I can you do. You totally <laughs> do. We're going to do a whole episode after I read that. Brie's book recommendations <laughs> is going to be its own episode. We'll get there. Don't worry, y'all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I really like this book and I, because I 
saw myself in her memoir. She was just, you know, she was a regular black girl who went into news and she wasn't, it wasn't this excess of ancestral pain. Cause I think when you're in school and you read so much about black people, it's Maya Angelou going through an extreme situation or, you know, it's roots or it's so many extreme versions of what black people are and what they go through. But she was just her and she was enough. And it was just figuring out who she was and what she wanted within the space of being black in the suburbs. And that was really important to me. Yeah. Because it also made me feel like, you know, even though I was just starting my career as a journalist, it still made me feel like I can do this, that there is still a place for me because she's on TV and on project runway and was editor of teen vogue like amazing things that this black girl who was just like me can do and that's why it matters so much i mean she's an exceptional woman you are an exceptional woman hence the gifting but (laughs) thanks brie it's so powerful hearing your experience alexis especially in terms of like representation and what it means as a little girl to like see that and then it be a part of your journey and your willingness to be a part of what is ultimately a very white space. So what has it been like for you navigating your journey as a black woman in this white space? Have you had black mentors that you've been able to lean on or through that, have you been able to return the favor at all and be a mentor to any sort of black up-and-coming journalist? Definitely having black mentors while in white spaces makes such an exceptional difference. And pretty at pretty much every organization I've had the privilege to be at and intern at and work at, older people of color have always reached out to me when they see me. And you know, they've reached out to guide to guide me because they know how hard it is because they've been where I was, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And it's so helpful to know that there's someone to look up to because I have a black female manager now and I think that makes an exceptional difference. Like I Oh, that's awesome. I yeah, she's super cool. I love Felicia. Uh, but she makes me super comfortable and you know, she's a mom and she's getting everything done and it's like you you don't feel alone and I think that makes such a big difference and you know that there's people who came before you who can who've paid the way for you and that are still there and I think them still being there and being there for you is helpful because you can ask them the questions that you're not sure about and you know when things go down in the news that are really stressful people will absolutely text me or message me on um message me on teams and check on me and I think it makes a really big difference. And even when I even when I came to interview, one of the guys on the video team, Jared Henderson, super cool. He saw like saw who I was, saw my work, understood my experience and just really helped me lay out and figure out what I wanted out of that fellowship once I got it. Wow. And that was and that was awesome because I did get what I wanted out of it. I got the type of work that I wanted out of it. I got the experiences under my belt that I needed. And because I had that guidance to look up to and someone who had done amazing things and has an Emmy, oh my goodness. Whoa. Yeah, he's super cool. I'm always glad when older black people reach out to me and make me comfortable in that space, and they make a space for me. So Alexis, you touched upon what it means for someone in a higher-up position to reach back and lend you a hand and help you out. 
what has it been like for you to turn around and do the same? I mean, I know you from AU and I knew of you originally as the editor-in-chief of The Black Print. So can you talk to us about that experience as a leader in a newsroom? Absolutely. And Black Print was such an exceptional experience because not only... And what was Black oh, Print okay. for our non-AU Sorry listeners? Sorry for all of the... I'm, I, I, this isn't actually an AU-centric podcast, so let, let me explain. The Black Print was our publication run and entirely by students of color on AU's campus. The Black Print had started the year we got to AU... So it was a brand new club and they were just they just got a website and you know we're we're trying stuff out. So I was super excited to have that chance to become a leader. Black women on the campus created a space in which I could strive for better. Y'all were running that. We did. We did that. Period. <laughs> <laughs> the things that you did. That. That. <laughs> Screw it. But yeah, black women had created a space on campus where I could strive for better. And it meant a lot to me. So I wanted to continue that space for other people. Like when I was interviewing for my positions at USA Today, I leaned so heavily on all my work from the black print. And because it was so helpful, I wanted other black students to have that same level of professional work to put forward. You know, rolling up to a job interview with a beautiful full color magazine and opening to a page and pointing at it and saying, that's my name. I wrote this. I shot this photo. I did that is important. Newsrooms want to diversify and bring black people in. But if we don't give black and low income students the chance to become professional because they won't have that from just parents or family or connections or whatever you know you may be coming into a space that's totally different than the community you came from so making the space for them to make their own media was really important and I really loved being editor-in-chief of black print it meant so much to the students of color on campus and I could see that every time we put out a magazine or an article or the way we covered things I know we weren't necessarily objective in the way that we covered things but it was more helpful because we got the trust of the people who the campus needed to hear from the stories that needed to be told would come to would come to black print first sometimes because they felt that it was we had created a safe enough space that they wanted to even tell their story which they might not have told to a traditional outlet yeah, and it was so necessary to, like, like you said, like, create that space that we mentioned, you know, white newsrooms, but a predominantly white institution like our college and navigating being a student journalist, you still come across a lot of those same questions in terms of, like, what's being covered, um, how it's being covered. And so for all of our college listeners, Alexis just really pulled one of the most important tips, honestly, that that we could offer which is you know everyone always wants to know how you get to like the Mm -hmm. big place right and in reality what it is is looking at the stepping stones and looking at the student publications and what you can do there if you want to cover you know the the black experience and black issues start at your university and see what you can do there because alexis was able to use the black print as leverage to then now do similar coverage at USA Today. Yeah, and it was so helpful to just have that experience under my belt of covering community. And even for me personally, seeing the difference in how, you know, Black Lives Matter was covered then and how it's covered now. Like, I got so much experience covering race at AU 
that I wouldn't have necessarily expected it, you know, considering it did have a small black population, but because it was such a politically active university, it was a lightning rod for literal white supremacists to show up to my yard. I mean, you know, it's the quad, but I paid good money for that to be my front yard, okay? And people did really scary things to our campus as freshmen. There were grown men who came and hung a noose on the light pole on our campus. As much as you want to be objective, that absolutely intersects with everything I am as a person, as a black person, as a journalist, as a student, as a resident. Wow. There's no there's no ignoring that. And when that happened, there was no ignoring the black community at the time. But I think because we had already started building it at the beginning of the semester as just a black publication covering issues that students wanted to hear about, whether it was small stuff happening on campus or, you know, the musical artists that black and brown students are into it made a difference because we were already you're for the culture it's by the culture for the culture we were by the culture for the culture and they were willing to, and the culture was willing to trust us that's like a really good slogan i feel like revolt should pick that up that's kind of good <laughs> call though call the pr department um but it was um it was it was both traumat it was both traumatizing and cathartic to be able to to see what's happening and actually cover it and making sure people are reading it. And then people would talk about the articles the next day. I mean, we had articles that got sent to the entire faculty of the school because of the way we covered an issue that was so different. But it was because of the people who we were and the things we prioritized that it made such a difference. Yeah, you guys had the trust and credibility to cover such a crucial and critical experience going on on campus our freshman year. It's really interesting to see the difference in what Black Lives Matter looked like on such a personal local level and what it looks like now on such a large national scale. Because, you know, in 2016, Black Lives Matter was a, a small group of D.C. activists coming to the coming to AU and helping students shut down the tunnel to demand safer spaces and other things from the university. And now on that same on that same stretch of Northwest Block, I got to cover a Black Lives Matter protest that started in Friendship Heights and had police protection. They shut down the block. They followed the protest. Every you know, this was it, it went from black students being in a tunnel crying and yelling at faculty to white kids from the neighborhood holding signs and handing out water bottles. I mean, it was such a drastic difference in what Black Lives Matter meant and still means to to people and the way in which we cover black lives matter being able to say that and not just be biased because when we said it it was because we were the black publication and right. we weren't afraid to be biased but now you know even major publications are willing to say black lives matter right right and that difference that stark difference of being editor-in-chief of a black publication versus being in an in in many ways in an the start of your career at a major white publication. And, yeah, crazy. What a difference. And those stark differences. And you were right. And you made that jump. And it's so interesting. Shout out to the black print kids. Y'all are all I'm always proud of you guys doing such exceptional work with such a small staff. Alexis, thank you so much for being willing to share your journey with us. Absolutely. I learned so much from it. And I'm sure our listeners also got so much from this conversation and we are absolutely committed to continuing it. And I think in our next conversation, as we continue through Black History Month, we hope to keep the conversation going. We would love to talk 
to anyone listening who also wants to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter at j 2 j underscore podcast, or you could shoot us an email at journeys, the number two, journos at gmail.com, and we would love to talk to you all some more. And now for the TKs. Here's what's to come. We'll be continuing this conversation with special guest Lauren Lumpkin, a previous editor-in-chief at The Black Print. Lauren's now an education reporter for The Washington Post. She'll be talking to us about her journey.